This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. As we've been hearing all morning, we have lost Queen Elizabeth, the longest-serving monarch in British history. And joining us this morning in studio is HPR's Ian Caps. You may know him as host of Early Muse, a long-running classic music show here on HPR, uh, HPR 2. But you may not know that before he came to Hawaii Public Radio, he worked for Reuters. And you're from London, Ian. I am indeed from <laughs> London. And it's in London that I have my favorite memory of Queen Elizabeth, uh, done then just crowned. Uh, my sister and I were, uh, I was 11 years old only, and my sister and I were allowed to be on Park Lane, and the soldiers there allowed us to creep through and be in front of them so that we could see this incredible um, f- parade of carriages and everything at, at the cor- from the coronation. And uh, I still remember the sense of immense hope that this young, um, wonderfully attractive and very empathetic young girl, young lady, um, was become, were, were represented the final, uh, the final end of the war, if you like. During the war, she had, as you heard on the news, she had um, been with her parents when they, unlike uh, many others um, who, who should have, who would have done it, uh, did not uh, desert London during the course of the war, even during the Blitz, but were always there, and she was always there. Uh, the future queen was always there, um, being you know visiting the disaster areas, encouraging people, and representing the sort of figurehead that she her later later knew how so well that so well how to uh, com- complete. Well, uh, I guess that early memory though of being you know a young boy and this feeling the excitement of of a change and of hope. That's right. You know, it was, um, you know, it had been a long time of rationing by then. Rationing was just about to end. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of effort to, to rebuild all of the bomb sites in London. But it was still a heavy, a heavy feeling. This was, uh, you know, everybody regretted the, the loss of the, of the king. But it was, in fact, a, a real boost to morale uh, for going to the future. It was hope for the future. And you, I sensed that. And to think that she just reigned for so long and did so much in her life. Well, one of the things that um, every time I go back to England and talk to people, one of the things that she still represents is uh, the lack of politics in a leader. She is there or was there um, as a figurehead uh, without any political, you know, with all the nasty political activities going on all over the world, uh, she was not a political appointee. She was independent, and she was always there uh, and never um, crossed over the, the boundary into, uh, into politics. And, and so, gosh, you know, uh, as you think, of, think back on that day, you know, when you watched her, uh, you know, take the throne, um, yeah, did you ever think that she would... Uh, reign for so long? Uh, no, but um, when you think of Queen Elizabeth I and of Queen uh, of Queen Victoria, uh, they lasted longer than most of the men, all of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you were just there in London this summer. Uh, we were just back for the first time in three years in London. Yes, um, but you know, it was all. It was not nece- not necessarily um, evident that there would be that she was on the brink of death, but she was 96 already. And her husband, um, uh, the, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, had, um, had died last year, and that was obviously a blow. Because um, as her own mother, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, had been the strength behind, and rather nervous initially, and um, George VI, um, and really was there behind uh, uh, the king. So she took that, uh, so uh, Prince Philip, or Duke of Edinburgh, took that role as well. He would love to be in the front, but he was always behind her and always in support of her. So it was really a great partnership. And I guess to think that, yes, yeah, she learned uh, how, to, how to rule, how to reign uh, because of the upbringing, upbringing she had with her parents. That's right. Absolutely, yes. It was a family tradition, and she really represented it to the full. And she was a very, very hard worker all her life. And so I guess, you know, as you think of your uh, fellow Brits today, uh, 
with the loss? I don't know. Any final thoughts? Well, I think people recognized that it was going to happen, um, and they are waiting to see how Charles um, manages to, to cope with the, the situation, and I, I think he will do a good job. He'll, he'll do his best. All right. Well, we thank you so much for uh, joining us today uh, to share your memories of the Queen and the royal family. Thank you very much for having me, Catherine. Thank you. We have been talking to HPR's Ian Caps about Queen Elizabeth II, who passed away earlier today. She was 96. Charles visited Hawaii back in 1963. Governor Jack Burns was in office at the time. It was a coincidence that our next story is about Mrs. Beatrice Burns, Hawaii's first lady, who greeted the royals during that official visit. We talked with Emmy Timimbang, who was married to Burns' son, the late Hawaii Chief Justice James Jim Burns. Emmy has fond memories of her mother-in-law, who was a polio survivor. Hawaii's first lady, who was a nurse, lived with polio, and hosted dignitaries from her wheelchair. Here's Emmy sharing Mrs. Burns' polio story. She was such a fighter, and... Her attitude was unlike anyone else. And, you know, when you were with her, because I had the privilege of helping Jim and caregiving her in her final years, and so I spent a lot of time at their home where I live now. And, you know, you just you just forget that she was in a wheelchair. You don't see it. And it's because of her humor and, and just the, the way she talks about life and, well, I'm starting backwards, but in her, you know, the autumn of her years, you know, she talked about meeting all these celebrities, and she was very, very impressed with Mrs. Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy. She had to have a dinner with them at Washington Place, and she orchestrated, she collaborated the dinner, and Mrs. Kennedy asked her, does she have any, I don't know, any difficulties being first lady and all that with her, and she says, no, no, she says, I guess the question was something like, the wheelchair isn't in the way. She goes, oh, of course not. The wheelchair is what gets me around, you know? <laughs> and and she even explained to Mrs. Kennedy that, yes, there's three floors, I guess, in, at Washington Place, but they built an elevator, and that elevator is still there. So that was some of the more recent things. And, of course, she got close to the Johnsons, Lyndon Bird, and Lyndon Johnson, and I re- recalled having to tell certain people that she had died, and one card came in from Mrs. Chiang Kai-shek. So she had this wide range of correspondence, and and so that's the backstory of, you know, how she lived in her latter years widowed, because, you know, the governor died, and I remember my husband used to say, my mother lived in this house for 12 years after my dad died, and so there's no excuse, you know, you can do it, because she did everything from a wheelchair. <laughs> of course, I felt terrible. But getting back to the very, very beginning, Mrs. Burns was born in Oregon, came to Hawaii as a nurse, was stationed at Goldfield Barracks. And then she moved around a little bit. And she was, I think, did some work at Fort Shafter. This is in the 30s now. And how she met the governor was they had a picnic. And it was not a blind date. And they met at the picnic and they kind of took to each other. And I guess that's kind of how the romance ensued. They were married in the early 30s. And she had her first child, John Jr., in 1932. And then her second child was Maribeth, her daughter, a year or two later. And then after those two children, she was seven months pregnant and felt her legs tightening up and couldn't understand what was going on. And the doctors pretty much told her to abort. And her husband was a very strong Catholic. And, of course, her belief system, too, was that she wouldn't. Now, this is in the 30s. 
and and she said, no, I'm going to try. I'm going to give birth. So she did. And the doctors all told Governor Burns, he was not governor then, okay, but he told Mr. and Mrs. Burns, you're going to lose your wife and you're going to lose your son, so you should abort to at least save your wife. And Mrs. Burns wouldn't. So she went along and it was, again, early signs. Her legs were sort of, you know, not working well and and then finally she gave birth and the child's name was Robert. He died, I guess, within a day. And she, you know, was of course, both she and, and John Burns were extremely heartbroken. And at the time, you know, they were living in Kalihi on Rose Street, which is like deep in the heart of Texas, you know? It's real in the local area. And St. John's Church is just a stone's throw. And I remember one day my husband Jim said, come on, we're going to look for my brother's grave. It took a while. We went to Kalihi, but, you know, it was overgrown, but we found it. We found Robert's grave site, and I know that Jim was extremely emotional when we found it. So fast forward, though, after her first not-so-good pregnancy and the death, eventual death of the child, she got pregnant again, and this is with Jim. And of course, all the doctors in Hawaii, in Honolulu said, abort, abort, abort. The governor and Mrs. Burns said, no, 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 no. And so they came across a masseuse named Seishiro Okazaki, and he had nickel restoration massage. And in modern day, everyone went there. Anyway, so this man, Seishiro Okazaki, was known for bringing jujitsu to America. But he told the governor, don't abort, I'm going to take care of her. So for six months, he had her on her back, made her bend her knees, and she would scream and yell, and he'd go, okay, scream louder, scream louder. And, and she would, but she would bend enough to move her muscles. And then he had the seaweed. It was called wakase seaweed with, mixed with water, and he would put it on her every day for six months. And she was able to give birth on April 19th, 1937, to my husband, who was a healthy, strapping eight-pound baby. And so she had been diagnosed with polio, but just oh, yeah. persisted. Yeah. When, you know, when she had been feeling all that muscle strangeness from the child that died in that time, yes, she knew she was with polio she knew she had it and but it was you know like i said the birth of her child that died and then jim's birth 37 wasn't so far apart so yeah she had already been in a wheelchair and i remember the story goes um the governor said to mr seishiro okazaki okay how much do i pay you and um mr okazaki said no no Papa Burns, he called him Papa Burns, don't give me money. I just want you to give him my name. So Jim's name was James Stanton Burns, but now the S legally has been changed to Seishiro. So if you go to the columbarium at Cemetery of the Pacific, you know, up at Punchbowl, you'll see his name is James Seishiro Okazaki because he was very proud of that name because this is a man who helped him to live Whereas his pregnancy, everybody said, you're going to lose your wife and your child. And here, both child and, and mother was fine. This was before the vaccine was developed. And so yes. she just made the best of her circumstances, you know, and she became yes. first lady uh, and she was seated uh, on her wheelchair. And, you know, she did go to the mainland for a little bit because they started to come up with treatments. And so even though she didn't want to, she did. And she didn't like it. She didn't like being away from her kids. <laughs> so, I mean, she had little Jimmy, then she had Mary Beth and John Jr. And even in a wheelchair felt that this was her duty. She had to be here to help them. And, you know, and I listened to Jim over the years before he passed. He said, you know, I never saw my mother walk. I just saw her in a wheelchair. And so at the time that Governor Burns became governor, everyone knew, you know, his first 
lady was the first lady with a disability that's going to serve. But everybody I know who talked about her said, after a while, the wheelchair disappeared. And she was able to, you know, entertain all these people. And Jim was always by her side. And he so was the one that carried her and brought her from car to wherever. She wouldn't want anyone else to carry her. And so, gosh, you know, Emmy, as you as you recall this time, you know, and coming through this pandemic, you know, and the whole controversy over vaccines and and just these diseases that we're we're battling with these days. I mean, gosh, you know, what are your thoughts about polio and and the COVID era of our lives? (laughs) I just, you know, I mean, it was unprecedented, of course, and. I always felt, I know this is going to be controversial, a statement, but this was like a war, a germ warfare, you know, and it was against humanity. And, the, you know, the enemy was unseen. It, it's COVID. It's, it's all of that. And now that polio has come back, it makes you question, you know, what is it about diseases that have we gone so far in revolutionizing our technology and yet? these diseases are coming back. I don't have the answer, but I find it interesting. Polio was preventable if you had the vaccine, but there's so many people that got the disease because the vaccine hadn't been developed yet. And so now that we do have a vaccine for COVID, there's still a lot of hesitancy. Yes. And I, you know, I grew up in the 50s and I remember, you know, our TB shot, our polio shot, it was automatic. I mean, I don't think there was any child that said, no, no, I don't want it. Everyone just stood in line and got their shots. And and it does make me sad that, I mean, I had to do a public service announcement to encourage Filipinos, mostly the ones from the Philippines. And they, you know, were hesitant to take any kind of vaccination. Part of it was because of, you know, being misinformed. I know of people that passed away. There was a very well-known couple and they were at a church in Waipahu. He was the musical director, and she helped with the choir and singing. And yeah, Filipino couple, and they were like, I guess in their 70s, and they went to Vegas to celebrate their anniversary. They didn't want to be vaccinated, but they came home, and within a week, because they each got COVID, and within a week, I think, they, they, they died one week apart of each other. And it kind of stunned the people in the church. And so I think more people then were, you know, wanting to at least get vaccinated. But, you know, it's amazing. Like I said, I'm growing up in the 50s and everybody got vaccinated. No, but no questions. And today it is worrisome that a lot of people are still hesitant for whatever reason, you know, not to take care of themselves, which also puts the rest of us in jeopardy. And like I said, I tried to do a public service announcement mm-hmm. in Filipino. It sort of worked. I had people tell me, oh, yeah, I heard Elokano and Tagalog on TV. And, um, and, and I think it, we have to work on the younger people to talk to their parents. I know this one young girl that I also had in my PSA, she said she lost a grandma. But she was the one that had to talk everyone else in her family. She was so... She was just traumatized by her grandmother's death, which she then says could have been prevented. And so she would argue with her siblings and everyone and say, if this is going to help save us and grandma didn't do it and it didn't save her, why do we even question it? And so finally, I believe the whole family became vaccinated and nobody got sick. It does make you pause and just reflect how we deal with adversity you know, during this time. I guess with closing thoughts at Mrs. Burns at a time when there was no vaccination, she did go to Shriners for a bit and she did go to Queens. But I can tell you that in her latter years, in her final years, when I I helped take care of her and I lived with her, you never saw the wheelchair. I mean, she was just she, just, she was so independent, but I loved her attitude. Your you know, spirit. she says, I'm not going to let this wheelchair define me, and I don't want to be pitied upon. I want people to know me as I am. 
And that was Emmy Timimbang, who we talked to as part of a series of stories we are running remembering the history of polio in the islands before there was a vaccine for the paralyzing disease. Tomorrow we close out the week with a polio story shared by a listener from the island of Hawaii. Stay with us. Last week's Wait, Wait, Skylar Higley demonstrated the sexism that Serena Williams had to cope with during her legendary career. I don't want to be one of those guys, but I am confident that I could beat Serena in Mario Tennis. So I'm Peter Sagal. See if you can beat any of our panelists at our game by joining us this week, along with special guest Abby Jacobson. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Beginning Saturday morning at 11, following Radio Lab. Support for HPR comes from SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, a public charter school in Honolulu for grades 6 to 8. Educating with a focus on community and stewardship, seeqs.org. Check today highlights a story about offshore money and elections. Honolulu Civil Beat Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair is on with us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So the story today is uh, actually from USA Today. It is. Uh, Civil Beat just now is partnering with USA Today to run articles. And this particular article is part of a series that uh, USA Today has put out on this company named Nomi Health, that's N-O-M-I Health, and how it has given generously (laughs) to governors from Republican states. And gee, what a coincidence. Uh, They also have received um, contracts for COVID testing, lucrative contracts, millions of dollars worth. And it looks kind of kind of secretive, according to the reporting from USA Today. And again, this is up on our website. But but here's the twist. Uh, this company, which is in Utah, Nomi Health, is now expanding uh, their interest to Hawaii. And some of the executives, including the CEO for the company, uh, Mark Newman is his name, uh, they've actually, actually given the maximum amounts here to some pretty prominent Democratic candidates, uh, although not Republican, here in the state of Hawaii. Yeah, and uh, uh, some of those donations went to uh, Josh Green, our lieutenant governor. Yes, <laughs> yes, names are named. And Josh Green, the Democratic lieutenant governor, who is now the nominee for governor, uh, along with five others. It includes Sylvia Luke, who, who is his, his running mate. Uh, this company, Nomi Health, has given, according to campaign uh, donation records, which is all public information, about $35,000. Uh, the lion's share, or a good chunk of it has gone to, to Josh Green. Um, this is a drop in the bucket compared to the million dollars plus uh, that Nomi has given to these Republican governors. And I should just tell you, by the way, governors of Iowa and Nebraska um, and a few other of the, of the, if you will, redder states, Florida, I think is another one, uh, and awarding these contracts. Utah is another one as well. But what's funny is why are you looking here locally? Well, USA Today did their due diligence and they, they talked to the company and they said, well, you know, we're, we just we support Josh Green's policy. We're like-minded on health care and so forth. And, and gee, by coincidence, they're also now setting up uh, cholesterol, free cholesterol and blood pressure screenings here at local health fairs. But the Insinuation. In fact, it's it's on record from people like Kaikahele, who lost Josh Green in the Democratic primary, but also Duke Iona, who is a GOP nominee here locally for governor. They're raising some questions about, geez, is, is this is this pay to play here? I mean, we all know, and this, this the article stresses this very much. Money buys access, does it not? Yes, and you know that was one thing that uh, Kaikahele, you know, uh, brought out uh, during that campaign. You know, like why. Why do we have this outside money influencing um, our elections, and what are they up to? <laughs> right, and and, and we sh- we do have a statement from the the Green campaign in this article saying, look, we've got 
thousands of donations from a lot of people. They do include healthcare companies, uh, corporations, uh, and Green's campaign is on record saying, to their knowledge, there have been no existing state contracts uh, for Nomi Health. But given the pattern uh, and the fact that it's given to these other governors where there is evidence of these contracts being awarded, it does raise a concern going forward. And, and Duke Iona did suggest that it could be an issue uh, in the general election campaign, which is well underway. Right. And and he's saying that this is a, a, a red flag. And uh, yep. yeah, it, it just makes you wonder, you know, are they buying access? Yeah. And, and by the way, we should say that uh, what Nomi Health did is they set up what's known as a non-candidate committee. In other words, they filed with the State Elections Commission or the commission, the Campaign Spending Commission, rather. It's essentially a political action committee, right? A mm-hmm. PAC. And that's how they make their contributions. One other thing, speaking of campaign spending, this very same company, uh, Nomi Health, was actually fined just recently, just last month, 500 bucks because – well, they failed to report their donations. Uh, uh, we did talk, or Tony Boleros is actually quoted in the article saying it's not unusual for that to happen. But, but clearly, Nomi Health is very interested in, in its opportunities, shall we say, uh, here in the state of Hawaii, even though we're a blue state, not a red state. Right. But still, lots of eyes will be watching. <laughs> yes. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. We have been talking with uh, Chad Blair for today's Reality Check. You can read that story at civilbeat.org. Well, the U.S. now has its first case of a dolphin dying of avian flu. It happened in Florida this week. And earlier this month, an unusual seal die-off in Maine was due to avian flu. Scientists here believe the risk to our monk seals and spinner dolphins is low. But it certainly is on the radar of those who work with these endangered or threatened marine creatures. We talked to Michelle Barbieri, lead scientist with NOAA's monk seal program, about this. We do have good surveillance in place to look for any introduction of avian influenza or or any other disease that makes it to our state. You know, I think with that, you know, coming from the monk seal perspective, we use every opportunity we have, whether we're handling a monk seal that has a fish hook ingestion ingested that we need to remove or uh, a seal that is being handled to put on an instrument for research purposes. Anytime we have our hands on these animals, we are collecting samples that we archive and use to screen for diseases. So we do have that built into the fabric of the science that we do in terms of surveillance. And we maintain relationships with other wildlife researchers that are studying other taxa, other species around the state. Um, and outside of the state as well, just to communicate and share findings and alert one another to any possible new concerns that might affect our species here. We just have to be on guard, I guess. You know, I mean, even just living through this pandemic, right? I mean, we watch things happen in in uh, China, in Italy, in New York, and, and uh, basically they eventually came to our shores. So, you know, as we hear about these headlines of the seals in Maine, what's the difference there between those colonies of seals and our monk seals here in Hawaii? Well, that's a great question. One of the most important differences is to recognize that Hawaiian monk seals don't really Um, what we say haul out or spend time on the beach in big, dense aggregations or breeding colonies or anything like that. Um, And they're kind of unique in that way. It's not to say that you won't see monk seals adjacent to each other, um, but you won't see these large colonies of animals that are in very close contact with one another. And when we're talking about things like avian influenza, which can be spread animal to animal or seal to seal in this case, you know, we we don't have that same type of behavior and structure in the population. We actually did do some work specifically on looking at interactions between individual monk seals and whether or not that would impact disease spread. Um, it probably, it, there's probably still enough contact between monk seals for these diseases to spread, um, but it's not quite the same as in these dense aggregations of different species of pinnipeds like the the harbor and gray seals in Maine. So our 
our Hawaiian monk seals intend to be loners. I mean, someone told me, oh, that's why they call them monk seals. You know, they don't really hang out in groups. Yeah, that's one of the possible explanations for why they were called monk seals. There are several others as well. We don't know the exact answer, but yeah, I mean, they are relatively speaking more solitary than a lot of the other pinnipeds that exist around the world. If we have so few of them left, how do we protect them? I mean, do we vaccinate them for diseases? Yes, we do. We vaccinate Hawaiian monk seals. We vaccinate them against a morbili virus, which is a big, long word, and people are probably going to be more familiar with measles, which is the morbili virus in people, and distemper, which is something that your pet dog is routinely vaccinated against. Morbili viruses are able to be really effectively prevented through vaccinations, and the program here at NOAA is the first in the world to launch and implement a vaccination program on a free-ranging marine mammal species at the population level. So um, we've been doing this since 2016, and monk seals line up to get their shots. Um, They get two shots about three to five weeks apart. And um, we've been really successful at, you know, we don't necessarily vaccinate every single monk seal, um, but we are aiming to keep enough immunity within the population to prevent the catastrophic effects of an outbreak of that disease. And so do we vaccinate them when they're young, when they're pups, or when they're adults? Yep. So when we first started, we vaccinated any seals that were available to to vaccinate. But now that we've got a few years under our belt and a lot of those older animals have already been vaccinated, we are pretty much routinely focusing our efforts on the pups that are weaned. And as people may know, we handle weaned pups um, to give them their flipper tags and that gives them their permanent ID and it helps us monitor the population and threats to the population as well. And so whenever those seals are given their flipper tags, they get a shot at the same time. So we don't have to do any extra handling to give them their first shot. It's piggybacked onto stuff we're already doing. And we don't handle them for their second shot. In most cases, we actually give them that shot with what's called a pole syringe. And that is basically a four to five foot long pole with a needle and syringe on the end of it. And we sneak up on seals when they're not suspecting it on the beach, give them a little poke in the gluteal muscle and sneak away. (laughs) (laughs) So is this the only vaccine that we administer to our monk seals? It is. It's the only vaccine we administer to our monk seals. It is actually a vaccine made for ferrets. Ferrets are really susceptible to distemper viruses as well. Um, And so it is available commercially, which is a huge plus. And it is also a vaccine that we feel is safe, meaning that it cannot cause that disease in monk seals. So it's a recombinant vaccine, which means that it's not actually going to create morbidly virus in the seal population, in the seal that's vaccinated and not allow that one to become symptomatic or spread it to another seal. And that was a really important attribute of of the vaccination program. So have the scientists had a chance yet to talk about this new development with the dolphins? I mean, it's so new. It's so early on. Yeah, I think one of the things that is important to note about that is that um, my understanding is that the dolphin stranded in March of 2022. And so I think that this goes into just noting that anytime we have stranded animals, collecting samples from them is a really important part of our overall surveillance of marine mammal health. And again, that's one of the key tenants for what we do for Hawaiian monk seal health research and monitoring as well. And in fact, the public can help when it comes to any sort of animals stranding on our beaches, whether it's a dolphin, a whale, a monk seal. Calling those in to the statewide hotline is is a huge help because being able to get our hands on those animals and detect dead animals or animals that might show signs of illness is really, really important to that surveillance component that we do. Because if we don't have our hands on them and we don't see what's going on, then we won't be able to collect those samples and send them to the labs for testing, which is how they found out about this particular dolphin as well. The clinical veterinarians around the state and the wildlife surveillance professionals around the state, everyone needs to make sure to maintain good open communication about what they're finding in the animals that they specialize in. And so for us in monk seals, it is, you know, doing our due diligence to conduct the surveillance that we think is appropriate for our species 
and then seeing that off of what else is happening for other other terrestrial species and avian species as well. So, you know, I think if avian influenza were to make it here, it would probably first be detected in birds. We don't expect that it would be likely to be picked up in a monk seal first. And so I think it is to, to just make sure that we're all staying in communication with each other. And we do have really good relationships. It's a pretty small community and we keep open communication throughout all of the professionals here. So the public can, can help out by uh, reporting uh, strandings or animals in distress just to make sure that, you know, if something is out there, that we're on it. Yes, the public can definitely help by reporting any monk sighting, whether the animal's in distress or not, is very helpful because the public can be part of the citizen science program that really helps us understand where monk seals spend their time, which monk seals are seen, and that statewide hotline is 1-888-256-9840. So people can call and report anytime they see a monk seal or any marine mammal on the beach. And especially if there is something that looks unusual about that animal, then we really want to know about it. And we don't want people to approach animals or take things into their own hands because sick animals can do unpredictable things. And we all know it's really important to give these protected species space. But we do really rely on citizen scientists to report what they see out on the beaches. That was Michelle Barberi, a wildlife veterinarian and lead scientist for NOAA's Hawaiian Monk Seal Program. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing comprehensive health care open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Kira Asatrian, author of Stop Being Lonely. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to create deep relationships and close friendships. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, an immersive exhibition of flowers and plant materials. Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, celebrates the abundance and vulnerability of nature. Opens September 17th. Here's a new term for you, polyforestry. Think Polynesian agroforestry. It melds traditional knowledge and Western science, and a pilot project is underway on the Big Island. It's one of seven climate equity projects that NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is involved with. The conversations Lillian Sang sat down with NOAA coordinator Pua Kamaka and Miley Luvai, president of the Keokaha Paniava Farmers Association. The focus? food security, and Akamai agriculture. Noah really wanted to hear from our communities about climate inequity and the troubles or issues that their local communities were facing. One of the things we heard was, please incorporate traditional ecological knowledge into management practices, value that knowledge, among other things. And for Hawaii Island, representing the Keokaha Pana Eva Farmers Association, we had Maka'ala rallies. Through our conversations, Maka'ala had shared about this great project that you know they had hoped to do, and Noah provided funding for it, and here we are. And so we partnered with National Marine Sanctuaries Foundation to help us administer that money, and then also with the East West Center and. University of Hawaii at Manoa to help with the climate data and that co-production of knowledge to help us develop those materials to help the community develop their poly agroforestry system. 
during this time of talk story. What bubbled to the top was from Maka'ala, who actually, there was an idea gestating in his community already, and so it felt like this was perfect. You all were talking about this, these ideas of agroforestry, melding it together with native knowledge. So, Miley, what was that project, that idea that was coming out of Panaeva, the homestead? Well, we've been doing strategic planning in our community for a couple of years, and from that strategic plan, we partnered with our consultant, G70, to develop a master plan for a 10.6-acre site, and seven acres of that site is going to be dedicated to innovative agricultural projects. And so one of the first projects we were looking at was doing a polyforestry project I actually didn't make that up. I borrowed it from um, someone named Koa Heva Heva from Maui. And it was a OHA-funded two-year project on Maui. And Koa Heva Heva and his father, David Heva Heva, led that project. And they actually designed an amazing polyforestry project in up Maui country. And I actually was the grant director for the Office of Hawaiian Affairs at that time, so I knew about this concept, and it was super exciting for me. You know, what we're doing is taking a model that exists, but it exists in a higher elevation, and then designing a similar type of model using resilient types of canoe plants that our ancestors used, but in a lower level elevation. And having NOAA and our partners help us with science-driven Akamai agriculture. But we wanted to do one specific to our community, specific to our climate, and specific to our soil. We are a Native Hawaiian agricultural community. We live on Hawaiian trust lands. So we were looking at ways to develop food security and food sources, but you know, understanding that we had to design a specific type of project because of the weather patterns. So this is something that we have already been working on in our community in development, and we were just fortunate that Maka'ala was sitting at the table, and we were recognized as a community that was ready for something very unique where we could build a model that could be used throughout Hawaii. One of the top issues in our state, as you know, is the fact that we're dependent on food coming into Hawaii. And it concerns me because if a major hurricane comes through our islands and here in Hawaii Island, I've been concerned about it, and we may lose our access to our food sources. Agree. Food security is a top of mind concern for many. And Pua, as Noah heard the community concern throughout the state. And now, choosing to work collaboratively with Miley and Maka'ala and their Farmers Association in Panaeva, how are you helping them moving forward? My understanding is that we are one of seven pilot projects nationwide, so it's exciting that we actually get to be a part of this. There is going to be the Upper Mississippi River Basin. Alaska is taking part. And the Big Island here in Hawaii, we are part of the Pacific Islands region. What are you guys doing now to set us up for success here? Yeah, so we are working with the communities who meet and identify how best to inform them on a community scale about how climate and variability, particularly trends and patterns, might affect some of the plantings they want to do. The focus really is looking at traditional canoe plants. So those plants that came with our ancestors on the va'a and helped sustain us, you know, for generations and looking to see how these conditions will change over time and over years and for future generations and how we as NOAA can help inform them on what to plant and when to plant them, particularly as it relates to the El Nino Southern and La Nina season. So are there going to be more hot days, less hot days, more rain, less rain, and help them sort of paint that picture and provide those tools as they create their poly agroforestry and poly systems to help build food security in the community. How do we make all that scientific data that NOAA has 
accessible and useful to our communities. That's really what we're trying to do here and do it in a way that, you know, is not just accessible, but is helping them. Right. So helping them in terms of building food security, building that resilience and empowering our communities all by translating that data in a way that's meaningful to them. I want to answer the question that Lillian just asked, too. You know, the next stage is, is planning and design, right? You know, how we are going to design the project, right? What are we going to plant given the current weather conditions? Where are those plantings going to go? How are we going to configure the planting so there's year-round abundant food? And of course, working with the partners on, you know, doing those types of weather predictions. How much water do we need? What is the soil conditions? What kind of, what's the pH? What do we need to get into that soil for these different types of canoe plants to make them abundant and resilient? But, you know, we're looking at a year-round food forest. That's the goal, right? To always have food growing. So it's all about planning and design. And so this project is part of our master plan. We're actually going to be building the first Native Hawaiian off-grid resilience hub. So we're actually also building a facility on that 10-acre site to serve for our community for agricultural workshops and for other programming, but also a resilience hub that will serve our community in times of need if a hurricane does come through. Um, this is going to be our first two-acre innovative agricultural site to be developed, but we're looking at develop a seven-acre site and then sharing that knowledge throughout our farming community and across the state so other communities can look at uh, creating food for us for their community. So I'm so thankful and appreciative to NOAA and, of course, uh, East-West Center, UH Manoa, and our other partners. This is super exciting. How much water is this going to need? You talked about the water, the soil, the pH. So how much preparation will so be So we're taken? looking at, for this project, now we're looking at two acres for the first phase of the project. Okay. And if you um, look at where we are in Hilo, we actually are in a wet zone on the Big Island. So um, we're lower level elevation, but we're, we're in a wet zone. I look outside, I'm at my house. It's completely green. I have forest around me and, and we're in a wet zone. But we are gonna put irrigation in. And you know that, that's the determination of what we're going to plant and how, where the plants are gonna be. You know, what type of plants work well in our current environment here in Panaeva? And, of course, that's a great question, right? Because, I mean, we actually hoping to put plants that use minimal irrigation, especially given since we are in one of the green wet zones in Hawaii. But, of course, if, you know, working with NOAA, we'll predict and anticipate weather changes and conditions may change. We have drought periods even in our wet zones where it doesn't rain, and that's when we determine when we need that irrigation and how much of it. So, like I said, we're doing the integration of both our cultural, ecological knowledge using these types of canoe plants that our ancestors fed whole communities with, but we're also integrating that knowledge from NOAA, right? Tapping into what are the weather conditions, what are those predictions, and then we're going to use that knowledge to determine, okay, so we're going to need to increase our watering now because we're going through a two-week dry period, and so we're going to have to use those resources and how much water do we need in order to continue the growth and the abundance of medicinal plants and the food plants that we have planted. So it's the Native Hawaiian cultural perspective, but we're integrating that science-driven knowledge that we're going to be getting from NOAA and our other partners to move this project forward. Okay. So Keao Kaha Panaeva Farmers Association will be the boots on the ground. NOAA, you're the yes. umbrella organization where all the other ones like East-West Center, SOAS, are helping, so no longer in silos, but actually sharing this information across with each other so that we can work together and really have a dashboard at the end. Yes. And that dashboard will be available to the public to share and perhaps help other communities who farm determine and inform them 
what could or should be planted, when they should be planted, whether or not extra shading would be necessary or watering would be helpful. This is sort of just all linked to climate variability and just how can we make our communities more resilient as we try to navigate climate change in an island environment. We will work closely with the Kiaokahapana Eva Farmers Association to provide that climate expertise and data to help inform their decision making. So we'll always have that open door you know, and welcoming and, hey, we're noticing this, is something going on, you know, and sort of have those conversations in a way that we can continue to help. Right. Ilian, I think the take on this Mm -hmm. is, you know, I mean, the climate change is such a heavy, hard topic throughout the world. And what we want to do is take climate change and turn it and, you know, use, use that knowledge toward creating positive change. And so that's how I envision this project is, you know, taking that negative and that heavy impact of what's happening with the climate throughout the world and then and then turning it and using it and developing tools to address how that's going to impact how we're growing food. That was Miley Luvai of the Kaukaha Panieva Farmers Association and Noah's Puakamaka talking with HPR's Nilian Song. The polyforestry pilot project is designed to help communities deal with climate change. We'll share links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. That wraps it up for us today. Up tomorrow, our Kolea are returning from Alaska, where avian flu has been found. We hope to get an update on the Kolea count. Got questions or feedback about what you may have heard on our air? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 